Welcome back, folks. Um, it's time for your apparently quarterly episode of uh, Light and Shadow. Um, I mentioned a while back that uh, my content was going to be a little less regular, partially because horror podcasts are just, they're so prevalent. There's so many out there. And um, I don't want to create content just to like add to the noise, so to speak. There's no shortage of opinions and reviews and such. And so um, these days I really only release an episode when I feel that I either have something new to add to the conversation or I just see something that inspires me to talk about it. Um, and so I recently saw a film that fits into one of those categories. Spoiler alert, if you saw the title of this episode, you know what it is. Um, but I have a special guest joining me today. Randy from the Straight Chilling Podcast is here. Welcome, Randy. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for having the noise on as a guest. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very excited about um, our discussion today because Randy and I are both creative professionals. Um, we are graphic designers, to be exact. Randy's also an illustrator and an animator, so I think he's probably a little bit more of a fine artist than I am, although he probably would not say so. Eh, I'm a fine artist, I think. <laughs> um, but we're also, you know, both part-time critics. I use that term loosely. <laughs> but, you know, we we love horror, but we also like to evaluate and criticize horror. Um. So anyway, because of those two things, uh, I think we are kind of uniquely positioned to talk about the menu. Is that going to fit everyone? Yeah, easily. 12 customers total. How do they turn a profit? 12.50 ahead, that's how. What are we eating, a Rolex? It's one of his classics. You have to try the mouthfeel of the mignonette. Please don't say mouthfeel. Tonight will be madness. Welcome. We'll endeavor to make your evening as pleasant as possible. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. We harvest, we ferment, we gel. We gel. We gel. He's not just a chef, he's a storyteller. The game is trying to guess what the overarching theme of the entire meal is going to be. You won't know till the end. Who are you? I am Margo. Why do you care? I have to know if you're with us or with them. This menu. The pictures, they're of us. This guest list. How do they get this? It's not good. This entire evening. Jesus Christ. This is just theater. It's stagecraft. We're leaving now. Has been painstakingly planned. 
I'm excited to talk about it too. This is uh this was my number one uh horror film of the year. Very very competitive in my overall favorite yeah, film of I, the year. So. I know that you've been bursting at the seams to talk about it. And because Straight Chillin, it's not on their docket at the moment, I was like, I'm mm-hmm. gonna take this opportunity to like just give this man a platform. <laughs> <laughs> Snoozy lose. I got things yeah. to say. Yeah, there, the there's, been, here. there's been banter <laughs> in the Slack, but I was like, let's let's make it official. So before we really get into it, though, I have a little bit of a disclaimer because of the content and the themes we're going to cover in this episode. I think it's really important that all parties are able to just speak freely. Um, and so usually my show is pretty clean, like language wise. Partially because there aren't a lot of like horror or just otherwise spooky podcasts that you can listen to with sort of a general audience. Um, But Light and Shadow is one of those, those rare ones. And um, it's not something that I set out to do when I started this podcast, but um, it just evolved that way. And I've kind of taken steps to preserve it. Um, However, this episode is going to be unfiltered as far as language is concerned. So just listen at your own risk. Um, also, there's going to be a lot of spoilers ahead. So uh, if you don't want that, you need to pause and go watch the movie and then come back for our lovely discussion. Um, but before we dig into it, I am going to read a little synopsis. A couple, Margot and Tyler, travel to a coastal island in the Pacific Northwest to eat at an exclusive restaurant, Hawthorne, where the reclusive, globally celebrated chef Julian Slawick has prepared a lavish tasting menu for select special guests. Joining the couple are three young, already inebriated tech bros, Bryce, Soren, and Dave, an older wealthy couple and repeat clients, Ann and Richard, renowned restaurant critic Lillian Bloom, and her magazine editor Ted, and a famous middle-aged movie star with his assistant Felicity. Hosted by the immaculately dressed front of house staff led by General Elsa, the evening unfolds with increasing tension as secrets are revealed and unexpected courses are served. With wild and violent event occurring, Slowick's motivation begins to rattle the diners as it becomes increasingly apparent that his elaborate menu is designed to catalyze to a shocking finale. Dun dun dun. But without diving in too deep, what was your uh, what was your initial reaction to the film and kind of like what resonated, what made you uncomfortable? Yeah. So, I mean, I I was excited to see this film pretty much from the outset. It looked pretty, pretty down down my alley. You know, I, I'm into this sort of like it seems like it was going to go after class issues and things like that. And I was very on board with that. I think there's a lot of interesting things being said about that in, in different mediums right now, especially in film. Um, cause Lord knows this country is poised for that conversation. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I was pretty excited and I was a little worried that maybe the movie would be like, uh, kind of, kind of showed too much of its hand in the trailers. 
I don't think that's the case. There's a lot of good, like beyond the scaffolding of this story. It's like very, very strong meat on the bone, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it's a pretty incredible movie. There's a lot to chew on. And you know, if you ever hear me talk on the podcast, uh, straight chilling, it's, it, that's what I like the most is a movie that gives me something to like think and ponder over a little bit later. So this definitely hits that checkbox for me. And besides that, the acting, the production value, everything that you, you know, all the nuts and bolts are there to create a good experience as well. Yeah, I feel uh, much the same way. I think uh, I watched the trailer just once, which is usually what I do these days. If I watch it at all, I try to just watch once. But I went back and watched it again in preparation for this. And I was like, oh, like they do kind of you see you you do learn a lot, but it doesn't really take away from the film. And um, I watched it a second time again in preparation for this to watch the movie a second time. And I thought I had sort of caught all the details on the first viewing, but I was like, Actually, after thinking on this, watching it again, I picked up on some of the little smaller things that I didn't the first time. And so I think for me, it's better with repeat viewings. Oh, yeah. I I also saw it twice. Um, My partner, Becky, uh, and I went. um, They didn't get to go the first time that I went to see it. And I had the same experience. Like, Like, this is, again, it's just there's just so much sitting there waiting for you to to poke and prod with the the meat of this movie that um i think that you could probably watch this four times and and still be still find new little nuances there's so much going on in the background of every shot some really interesting things when i the, the, i saw an uh an interview with anya taylor joy and nicholas holt and um the director whose name is escaping me at this moment mark Mark Milod, Milod. I don't. Is that the proper pronunciation? I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't heard it said out loud. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and they were. He was. They were pointing out that you know, the, pretty much the entire cast was on set all the time, just so they could catch those background nuances. And there's a lot of them they pointed out, and there's a lot of them that you'll see on repeat viewing. So I'm totally in that camp as well. Yeah, that was smart. So, um, which character do you identify with the most? Uh, <laughs> this is a tough question because it's a fun question. Is, it is a fun question. <laughs> so, like, as like somebody who is in who is a creative um professional, which I hesitate to use the word artist because that shit is bandied around so wildly. Um, and I, I personally, I my personal feeling is that if you make anything, it, it can be considered art, whether or not it's art that's worth anything to you or anybody else is is entirely flexible um so anyway all that to say slowick was like an obvious sort of parallel for me is like the beleaguered artist put in this position um or putting who has put himself in this position of making his art um also the way that he sustains his life so that like there's a one-to-one correlation for me there i'm not as accomplished as this man but you know we all like as creatives we all strive to be like the masters of our artistic um voice and everything in a way that's also going to keep us you know clothed and fed um so him being like all very put upon by having to cow to to the finances of the of the issue whether it be patrons or you know rich sycophants of his angel investor or whoever those sorts of things they're they're things that we deal with i i think all the time um or at least here and there 
um, through our experience as like having a client and creative relationship. It's a very tough thing. But that said, I think I actually identify more with Margot because I kind of personally take I, I, I'm very irre- I, I like irreverence. I like to keep myself as ego free as is humanly possible. And with when you're talking about creative stuff, that can be difficult. Um, but I'm very much like I, I don't want to be the pretentious jerk who thinks too highly of himself. I'd much rather be the person who stumbles ass backwards into a great idea and can implement it. So I really like Margot as just sort of like a character who ultimately we find out is like just the get it done service worker. That's just, you know, can see through the nonsense, but also um, knows what they're owed for what they're for their, for their station in a situation. So I don't know. I'm kind of, I would like to say Margo, I guess, but Slowick is definitely deep in the trenches with me. Yeah. Well, I think his character and his, you know, challenge in life is what makes this movie resonate with creative professionals so much as we've all sort of felt that way and uh, have had, you know, fantasies about knocking off difficult clients. Um <laughs> So I, I think, too, it's interesting that you chose kind of like somebody from the givers and somebody from the takers, as he puts it, um, because I sort of felt the same way. Like, I can't remember the sous chef's name, but the one who shoots himself, like the first crazy mm. thing that happens whenever he, he whenever Chef Sulk is introducing him and he's like, he's good. He's very good. He's not mm. great. He's not yeah. ever going to be as great as me. I, the, I That hit me in the gut because I was like, oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Like The inner I, thoughts of all of our art directors. <laughs> yeah, yes. I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, you know, I, I love my job and I think I'm good at my job, but I'm like, I'm not a genius designer. You know, I'm, I'm just not. Um, and so whenever he's like clearly worn down and like in tears to the point where the chef's like, do you like your life? Do you want my life? And he's just like, no. I was like, oh my, oh my gosh. Like Not my I'm ha- station, but my life. And I thought that was like, oh man, there's something really interesting going on with Chef uh, Chef Sloak in general. Like this is why I don't really, I d- can't say I fully identify with this man because first mm-hmm. of all, first and foremost, he's a, a mass murderer. So I would like to not associate with him thank you but also like he has these like weird cruxes of like like i understand like it, it can be devastating to get negative review from somebody that you who you look up to or who you otherwise are are, are beholden to in some way and you respect their opinion and to have them say something as devastating as you'll never be as good as me and also like pro- these pro like this man is also a cult leader and that's the that's the x factor that's really mm-hmm. like gluing the premise together but not really the motivations of the characters. It's just very interesting because like his entire staff is are so Jim Jones out like to the, like they, they are ready to die for this one dinner service all because they see in him the same troubles and tribulations that they have presumably. And because he is a cult of personality in and of himself. Mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know about you, but I've interacted with some designers that have, are, are named designers in my life. And for the most part, they're pretty normal people. You know, they get there, you know, just through sweat equity and all that stuff. And they're pretty, you know, ego free, but there are some people out there 
who really, really love themselves a little too much and are like that slow to a T. And that is exactly the kind of egotist I try not to be in every facet of my creative life. Um, I don't know about you, but yeah, I well, and I recognize that terrifying face. Of course, you know, too, this is a riff on those people who are so dedicated to a certain chef or a certain restaurant and that they literally they may not live at the restaurant, but they're working 80 hour weeks for like no money, basically giving up their whole life in the pursuit of this, like serving this greater purpose at this restaurant. So even though it's clearly like you said a cult it's it's really just kind of a little bit of a stretch from reality yeah. enough to enough to make it an interesting premise but i can totally see i can totally see how that was not a giant leap you know no not at all i totally agree like that the the, the thing that you're told at least when you go through the college route of becoming a designer my experience with that was they put you through the ringer. There's a trial by fire, whether you want it to be or not. There's this fetishization of certain aspects of being a designer. You're, you're an empath. You need to be able to get in people's head. Like all these fucking like just high minded, but ultimately empty promises about what being a designer actually is. The day to day is way more mundane and you end up sacrificing so much of your day just to accomplish the day to day that gets you to the level where you can then be somewhat creative. It took me seven years probably before I was, I would really say that I had like a lot of creative control over what I was doing while working for someone else. And then that really only stepped out once I went freelance for a while and, it's not far from a cult like this mindset it's so romanticized from the beginning it's not that big of a leap i guess i'm just that's a really great observation yeah well and i have uh i have a a similar a similar path and you and i you and i will dig into uh some some personal design stories a little bit later but like okay. uh, yeah i can definitely i can definitely see how how this was inspired by some real life stories one more thing I did want to mention. There is one other character that I do kind of identify with, and it makes me a little sad, but it's true. So Tyler being yep. like so into this dinner, so into this <laughs> dinner and like taking pictures and like explaining to her like how it's going, because at first you kind of think, OK, it's her annoying boyfriend and he's really into this and like she's not. But, you know, he's just he's a nerd for food. Right. So we're just I'm like, I can sort of forgive that. But because I've done this with my family, of, oh, we're going to go to this restaurant, knowing that they're not really into like fancier food, but like it's going to be a good time for everybody. And like, clearly, I'm more into it than they are. Um, David has kind of come along with me on this journey. And I certainly would not call us foodies like that word makes <laughs> me cringe. Same. But we appreciate a really well crafted, you know, possibly overpriced dining experience so um when we when we started out out of, right out of the gate with him i was just like oh man this is this is definitely this is definitely me a little bit however by the time we get to the end when margo just wants a freaking cheeseburger that also i was like yes i was like yeah. i enjoy a good like mcdonald's burger i mean there have even been times when um david and i will like go to a fancy restaurant just like maybe we're just going to sit at the bar and have like a drink and split a small plate and then on the way home like we'll grab a fast food burger so oh yeah yeah so this movie was like sort of a full it just hit me on a lot it hit me on a lot of levels 
that way. That's what's sure. yeah. I I'm I totally agree with you. First of all, and I'm like as a side note, Nicholas Holt might steal the show for me as the actor of this film. He is funny as shit. The whole movie, he is running around, like him peering through the windows at the meal at the the course. He's not. What'd you have? What'd you have? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And he's such like the, the little like hand slap he gives her when he's trying to take a photo. Like there's so many little mannerisms that he put. Anyway, I can get trapped into that. But um, no, I totally agree. Like I like I think that he is like a like he's a really like maybe the most interesting one of the most interesting patron characters because. He wants to be involved with it. He wants to understand how it works. He's like dedicated to figuring it out. He's so there, but to a fault, to an insane fault where he's willing to get himself and other people killed. Like, I think that this is, he is the, like every patron basically represents a certain kind of follied character in the art and commerce space. And I think he's like the, the cloying fanboy who will never be able to accept by the person they idolize be talked out of, you know, be taught. He's, you're never going to, he's never going to say anything negative about the chef. He wants, he's vying for that. Like it's very much about a reflected glory. And then when he's actually put in a position to earn some glory for himself, it doesn't matter how many episodes of chef's table he's watched. He is not a chef. He will never have that talent. He's not able to do it. And it's devastating to him. I think that we all kind of have a little bit of that in us. In order to become an artist, you have to have a little bit of that. You had, there had to be some show you see a show you saw as a kid or some like animation or something, a comic strip that made you be like, I want to do what this guy does. I want to do what Bill Watterson does. I want to do what Walt Disney did or whatever. And so you start idolizing things and it's only until you can sort of let go of that and let your work speak for itself that you kind of can be free of, of that sort of like impression that you, you, you need to impress your qualities upon this, this God figure. There's no God figures in art. Everybody is an artist. They just need to put pen to paper, basically. So you got to find your own way. The next thing I wanted to talk about was, do these characters deserve their fate? And so we're we're already talking a little bit about Tyler and his fate. And I know you and I have talked a little bit about him being called out to cook in front of everyone was like such a difficult thing to watch. And why was that difficult for you to watch? Oh, because I think that that's like the fear of everybody who's starting a journey into becoming some sort of artist. The thing is, like, Nick is maybe on his path to becoming what the guy who shot himself was trying to do, like dedicating parts of his life to it. But he's will he, he's not actually willing to put in the time to f- learn the skill. He's only willing to put in the time to learn about the, the way that it operates, which is I guess fine, but there's something about people who are willing to step on their own grandmother to get this one, you know, special edition LP because they're that big of a fan of the artist. Like you, there's, there's limits to how, how, how you can behave that way basically. And so, yeah, watching him, it's like, it just calls me back to like the first design classes I ever took, the first art classes I ever took, where I was desperately afraid that I was going to be made an example of. And he gets made an example of in this movie. <laughs> yes, he does. I think for me, too, I was really thinking about in that moment, I was thinking more about filmmaking than anything else, because, mm. you know, as horror fans, we we really love our genre and 
you know, if you've been watching it your whole life, like I have, you know, I have about 30 years of watching horror under my belt. So it's like, I know a lot. I've observed a lot. I've never made a movie. And if somebody gave me all the tools tomorrow to make a movie, it might be great. It might totally suck. And I might cave under the pressure. And so the fact that horror, even though it's got this really great community, like I said in the intro, there's lots of noise out there and there's lots of people that have big opinions who don't actually know the first thing about actually making a movie. Um, and yeah. I've heard I've heard you say this, and it's an opinion that I hold as well, that almost any movie that gets made is like a miracle. It's so yeah. difficult to get any movie made ever. And so that doesn't give people like a pass for, you know bad quality movies but at the same time it's just it's just something to like remember and so whenever we whenever he gets made an example of it just it felt really like real but also stung just like a tiny bit yeah no that makes sense <laughs> and that's totally true is like i don't i think that like over years now of doing our review podcast where every week we as totally completely unqualified fans get on and say some like wildly off the wall nonsense about whatever movie we're talking about. We go to the, I think that I recognize this in most American culture now, probably beyond that where people just like, we want to go to the top shelf for our opinions and find like the most, I don't know if it's like for us because we're idiots. We, we go to the most obscene thing that we can obscene way of describing what like our feelings, whether positive or negative, and we bring those up and we like we go for laughs. It's the thing is like complaining about things and gushing about things are both forms of recreation. And that's in part what you engage with art to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there's a part of me that feels that way, too. But like, there's there's limits to that. And you can't like and, like you've got the critic table at in this movie who are like they hold people's careers in their hands. They're never going to say anything they're never going to say unqualified praise and just you know they're always going to have that thing to nitpick the split emulsion in this movie uh, and mm-hmm. things like that and like careening people's careers out like they have so much power but they're not that much different from nick holt the difference is that nick holt's character is just a fawning idiot and he's not they're not that much different than uh the angel investors employees who just like they they're going to the top shelf for their language too. They have like, where's the bread? What you're really not going to give us bread and things like that. It's like, I think I recognize that myself in all of that stuff because that's how you engage with art. And it's really painful if you're the artist <laughs> who is trying to create something for people to engage with a certain way, but you cannot control that. And once you put it out there, especially when commerce is involved, people get a sense of entitlement. I get a sense of entitlement when I watch a movie that it's not going to have some horrible, I don't know, like some horrible homophobic message or something ridiculous in there that I don't like, didn't want to pay for, or didn't mm-hmm. like, I didn't pay for that. You're just sneaking something in there. In my opinion, you have a duty to me as, as an, uh, a patron. And that's where like the art and commerce core of this movie, that's the thing that I just bleed about with this whole movie is I don't have a solid answer as to how you engage in art and make a living doing it without selling pieces of yourself piecemeal. I mean, it's part of it. I've worked for clients who I loathe, like, and I've, you know, like 
been snubbed by clients that I would have loved to work for. You know, like there's nothing in the rule book. You just kind of go out there and you figure it out. And ultimately, it does not matter how good you are. Chef Slowick is the most precise mm-hmm. chef in the world. He is still under the thumb of investors and patrons and everybody else. He's still beholden to somebody. There's no freedom as an artist because it depends on people interacting with what you make. And especially once money is involved, it's a caustic relationship. Well, absolutely. Because no matter how brilliant he is, if someone didn't give him the funds to put him on a platform to get him in front of more people, then people wouldn't get to try his food. People wouldn't know. So there's that there's that push and pull of like the talent and the opportunity and how they work together and they can work together. But you're right. It's a very difficult. It's a very difficult combo. Ultimately, you're part of an ecosystem and you have Mm -hmm. to be at some level okay with your position in that or else you need to not participate in it. And if you can find a way to do that, like that's that's what outsider art is. You know what I mean? That's what like, you know, people making music in their base. I respect DIY punk music more than any other. Like that's my genre because it's authentic. People who are making things purely for their own enjoyment and the best cases. And it just so happens that I stumbled across your like ridiculous demo CD from you know 1999, and I think it's really great, and so I become a fan in that way. And there's not a whole lot of commerce involved. I respect that, but it's not a like it's not a way that's going to get you through the onslaught of life that is presented to you by a modern capitalist society. It can't they can't really coalesce in a clean way? So in this complicated mix of people and art and commerce and blah, 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 in Chef Slowick's world, in this movie, do you think these people deserve their fate? Um, I would <laughs> I would have to be pretty cruel to say yes. I, I, I'm not the guy who wants to like threaten somebody's life because I think they did a poor acting job or because they were too critical. It's a murderer a murdering egomaniac temper tantrum does not make your sometimes salient points about the w- problems with the world uh stronger it makes them uh weaker so i no, i'm not i'm not on chef slowick side when it comes to the ultimate end of things <laughs> but i do but the complaints that he's making those do resonate like i've just been talking about like there's some like i said every every patron in this uh movie is on some level can be correlated to just about any other art plus commerce situation. Um, any working artist has run across a version of one, each of these people in their work for the most part. And I, I don't know, like I, yeah, it, it's, I can understand why he would be frustrated by these people. The unfortunate truth though, is he's frustrated with himself too. He doesn't let himself off the hook. He allows himself to be stabbed and then joins the final hurrah in the end, just like everybody. Yeah. But I think that's a temper tantrum, not an artistic statement. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about too. Um, and I formed this question before I watched it the second time, but like how complicit is he in this like flawed system in and in his own prison? Um, because on my first viewing, I remembered it like he was blaming everyone else, but not holding himself accountable. And then this is one of the things on the second viewing that I picked up on little bits of dialogue where I thought, Oh, I I think there's, there is more going on here. So how did you feel about that? Oh, I I think that I pretty much clocked him as being like, 
I, I don't think that you put yourself in the situation that he does without without having like it it feels like he is um judging everyone else but not himself because he is the authority he is the architect of the scenario mm-hmm. he is the one that is dishing out punishments but he does so to himself because he does know i mean i i i like i think both times i kind of felt the same way that he he knows exactly what his culpability is i think he is somewhat complicit like he exists like i said in in the same ecosystem he could have just kept flipping burgers and making minimum wage forever that would have been maybe artistically satisfying, I guess. I don't know. Or just made dinner, nice fancy dinner parties for his friends. And that would could have been artistically uh, gratifying for him. And just, you know, worked at the sawmill eight, five days a week for eight hours a day and, you know, gone home stinking of wood. And that, that would have been fine. But he chose to be a part of this ecosystem. And as much as it pains me to say that, like, say this, like, if you're going to be in that ecosystem, you're going to take these lumps on some level. You have to be able to roll with that. And it, I can understand his frustrations, but he is just, he's an egomaniac. I'm you, like being, being criticized by critics should not make you a mass murderer. I just don't approve. <laughs> no, no. Well, and he, he does mention that he had allowed his price point to get to such that these are the only people that can come. Right. And he says, I've made a life out of trying to satisfy people that cannot be satisfied. And then he also mentions that his restaurant is part of the problem. And so um, I do think that he he he's holding himself accountable, of course, again, in this insane world where he's a killer, which is not acceptable but but in the world yeah in the framework of this movie though in the framework of the story um it 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 did feel to me upon the second viewing like okay he's yeah he's um he's harshly dishing out judgment to everyone else but he recognizes his own part in it and i think he sort of rejects that and probably hates that part of himself. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately that is why he lets Margot go because she realizes, or I don't know if she knew it would work or not, but she thought, Hey, I'm going to hearken back to something he enjoyed doing and maybe it'll work. Mm -hmm. And she was, she just happened to be right. You know, she was able to give him that one last bit of like, Oh, remember what it used to be like when you cared and Mm -hmm. you really wanted to make somebody happy with your food. That was like, I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah. I'm sorry. I I think that was really brilliantly telegraphed actually. Cause like you have that shot of him. The only shot you see of him, like with a genuine smile is in a photograph in his secret study of him making burgers as a kid, as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So, it, and he, he mentioned at some point, he's like, I can't remember the last time that I enjoyed feeding somebody or something along those lines. And it's like, yeah, when you like get, it's this weird push and pull where like the more you succeed and get opportunities that allow you to flex certain muscles and try experimenting with certain things and do daring stuff, the more you get to that level, the more under the radar, under scrutiny you are, and the less you are able to enjoy it. So for him to reach the echelons that he's reached, it's no wonder he's fucking miserable. Um, But at the same time, you mentioned earlier, like, I don't know that, like, I think that there's thresholds for everybody. Like, I don't, I don't think you necessarily have to reach like the pinnacle of your field in order to feel that way. I think that like, you know, it it can be just as tiring to work your entire career and never get those opportunities. So it's like kind of a no win situation where if you participate, 
you know, the you've sold, you know, you don't get to entirely, you don't get everything you want ultimately. And as an artist, that can be really tough, especially for one as precise as Slowick, who definitely, definitely wants specific things out of his work. Yeah. So, I think I it can be maybe more difficult for people like him who I would say are, you know, super driven or even creative geniuses. If you want to use that word, I, I've, think I with all the creative people I've worked with I've found that I think the people who are the who are the happiest are the people who can kind of work in the middle. It's like yeah. I'm not at the bottom. I'm constantly trying to like be better and challenge myself, but I'm not trying to be the best of the best of the best. Those are the totally. people that I've found are have the most balance and are most likely to be happy in what they do. So the next well, thing I want to talk about is how far do you think fair criticism goes and like at what point are we just sucking all the joy out of art and creativity i mean i think by definition of that question like fair like if it's fair then it is in some way productive it will either help you in your current work or it'll help you in the future work that you're going to derive this work from you're always building on the last thing you made good bad or otherwise so I mean, but it's a, a fine line between fair and um, just history. You know, like I, there's, I don't know about you, but I am faced often, more often than ever, I would say, with calls with clients or with, you know, account people or whatever who will frequently just have to say something in order to justify their presence in a meeting that they were invited to. And, you know, I, I understand that impulse. You want to justify being there. You want to, you know, not seem like you're sleeping through the meeting. I understand. But it's led to some, like, bizarre and pointless and absolutely unconstructive feedback um, more often than not. I feel like there's a lot of – this is the thing is, like, when you give people a platform say, hey, what do you think about this? It forces them to pick something to say. Mm-hmm. Um and sometimes you don't even have to shove the microphone in their face. Sometimes they just do it because they feel like it's part of their job. So I don't know. It's There's a lot of that out there where people just feel like they owe it to the world or to their whoever they're talking to to put their opinion out there and stick to it like fucking glue. Um, you see that a lot with the internet. Like people changing their minds is about as rare as it comes about anything. But then I had that feeling about star Wars. Like I haven't watched a star Wars movie, a new star Wars movie in several years because I just got tired of being asked my opinion about it. I don't really care that much. I don't think I've cared that much for, for many, many years. And no, that's not a slight to anybody who loves star Wars. Great. Please continue loving star Wars. I just, when people ask, I don't want to have to go through like, oh, well, Ray did this and that was cool, but then blah did that. and blah. I, I don't want to parse it on that level. I want to like, those are things that I just want to consume and forget about or just not consume at all. Mm-hmm. So like the pressure to have an opinion, I think is really the culprit behind what's fair and what's not. But then sometimes you get like the egotistical, you know, needs to rub your nose in it type who will take even fair criticism and make it a... um a point of derision and that's its own sin basically. Yeah. I've seen a lot um, of banter on social media, particularly in the horror genre where I think people just enjoy fighting with each other, I guess, because it's recreational. Yeah. And it's like every new, like big 
you know, whatever the flavor of the moment is in horror, it, you know, it's got to be you've got the people who are like, it's the best thing I've ever seen. And I hate it. It's you're dumb if you like it. And there's kind of there's like never hardly anybody in between. And it's almost assumed that you are if you even have like even remotest amount of passion about any opinion, like I don't like malignant very much. And I made a lot of passionate arguments to that effect. I do not hate that movie and I don't hate anybody who made it. And I don't hate anybody who likes it. The people who come out and like, like are ready to just add, ad hominem you to death because you feel a certain way about a movie there. That is a, a dopamine response reaction that's coming from the thrill of belittling people, which is more and more the hunt of choice for Americans and for the world because of the internet. Yeah. I I don't know how many like Facebook groups I've just watched devolve where like they started out as like really great places for like, oh, we're going to discuss and we're going to share. And then over time, it just every single post becomes super, super polarizing. Um, it's defensiveness too. Like people like you have to be able to like pe- people want to goad you out of into a defensive position so that they can then crush you. Like that's whether they know that that's what they're doing or not. I've had this impulse to like entrench myself in an opinion that I don't even hold that hard. Like I don't have that strong of an opinion about X, but because somebody said a mild criticism of it, my gut instinct is to be like, no, no, you're, you're an idiot. <laughs> like I must I, I've definitely acted that way before. And I'm ashamed of that. That's, you know, part of the shame of experiencing this movie and seeing myself in some of these patrons. Yeah. Although to be clear though, I will say just the random person on the internet or even like you and I mm-hmm. and straight chilling, you guys have like a pretty healthy, healthy listenership. However, we are Fingers not, crossed. we are, we are not any of the people in this restaurant. Like no, the people in this restaurant are high, high, high level people with a lot of power, influence, or connections. These people are not the average Joe. So I'm definitely not comparing, you know, random person mm-hmm. on a Facebook group who has an opinion about a horror movie to like Lillian Bloom, whose opinions actually have a lot of power to sure. either, you know, increase or decrease someone's value. So that's that's an important like part of the conversation. But also um I, I do think it's important to look at these folks and, you know, be willing to engage with like what part of this is in me, like what part of this am I sort yeah. of like taking taking part in? Exactly, they're 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 parable figures. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, like like there's a lot to be said about class in this movie, certainly. But because I'm drawn to the art conversation, I experience them as like these are these are archetypal characters you would find in this situation like your my opinion not may not wield the same power as Lillian Bloom but at the same time like if you put me in the right mood I will fight tooth and nail about it as if the entire like ecosystem of film revolves around what I have to say about it and that's never once been true in fact what's it's terrible that to me that we have now an ecosystem in movies where people can get so up in arms about something like, for example, Sonic the Hedgehog's face that the artistic choices change, whether or not you think that's high art. I certainly don't. They made a choice. And like we so many people complained and cried about it that they changed it entirely. And I don't think that like 
they don't I, I the the question of what an artist owes you back and versus what or what you owe an artist what an artist owes you back all that stuff it shouldn't really be anything people like in an ideal world the ideal would be people make things you experience that thing and you feel a way about it and you don't adopt it into your personality necessarily not every movie needs to be your personal catcher in the rye holding caulfield you can just experience it and say i enjoyed that or i didn't enjoy that and that can yeah. be enough but because we feel like we have to justify every move we make and then crush all opposition in every way it starts as sort of a dopamine hit and then it becomes an addiction i really i really think that i think yeah. people are addicted to their own opinions that sonic the hedgehog thing killed me even though Dude. i agreed that he looked janky yeah he looked the- terrible <laughs> But the fact that people were able to complain and get the studio to change it, I was like, oh, this is not good. Like, this is not a good move. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have situations where, like, directors will have three different director's cuts because they are never satisfied. Like, there's a million things about this that feel weird to me. And ultimately, like, that weird feeling is channeled into internet rage. (laughs) through so many people that it makes it sad to even think about. And I think that's what's being touched on with these characters is like William Bloom. I may not have those, that power, but I sure fight like I do. And in certain cases, or if I'm, you know, paying for a piece of artwork, I might act as entitled as the, the dude bros who are there on their boss's dime and whose marriages are falling apart. Or, you know, I might be an opportunist who might want to be, getting this meal free because I want to host a podcast about it yeah. <laughs> or something. Oh, like and the, um, those, <laughs> the, the older couple, um, they, mm. we haven't really talked about them at all, but they struck me as interesting because, you know, there are people that are there for a lot of reasons and mm. almost none of those people are there to actually experience his food like not really and the older couple that have been there i think 11 times i could tell even before he asked them that like when they're they're at dinner and they're having conversation and she's just like oh it's all so and so today and he's like oh yeah. how is he and she's like oh you know and i was like yeah. oh my gosh like this should be an amazing night this is like a once in a lifetime like you guys should be excited and like you can't even like manage to have one good conversation right. over this dinner it's like a miserable status oh, thing for them yeah you know, exactly they're probably like oh yes i'm taking my, the wife to hawthorne tonight you know <laughs> Yeah, just I mean, just nothing like that's that's the uh, like, man. Every character in this is a rich version of. Some I know like the, the idea of having so much money that you literally cannot buy happiness because no. everything else has collapsed around you. That's what's happening to the angel investor clan crew there. Yeah. That's you know, it, it's the money doesn't buy you happiness, but it sure can make people subservient to you and. If you're mean enough, that can be enough. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and watching that couple too just made me like keenly aware of like, oh my, I don't ever like, I don't ever want my relationship to be like that. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. like I hope I don't I'm ever find kidding. myself at a an amazing dinner and I can't even have a good time with my husband. You know, that's that, and that's, that's where like that's where like every character, almost every character, in some way, like re- like resonated on some level. Like you said, there's mm-hmm. just there's just there's a ton of just like richness and a lot to chew on, if you will. That was terrible. <laughs> and honestly, like that's not even to touch 
the infidelities and the implications of what we find out from Margot about that couple later on. That's that's a whole other level yeah. of twisted, twisted old money situation. I get, I don't know how to phrase what I'm trying to say, but it's uh, it's not good. Let's just put it no. that way. It's not no. good. <laughs> So I want to like dig into some like personal things that are adjacent to this movie. But like before we move into that phase, like, do you have anything else you want to talk about or any other comments that you want to make about the menu? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm focused primarily when I watch this on on the question of art and eco- economics and finances and how those are like the most uncomfortable bedfellows that just absolutely dominate my life course. (laughs) Um, So I'm like fixated on that, but there's a lot to be said about the class issue. And we just discussed some of that. And I don't want to neglect that because that's the more universal thing going on here is the idea of like, it doesn't matter how good or incredible or poised or how successful you are at, at anything. If you are not the one holding the money, then you do not get to make your own rules only the people wealth is the only path to ultimate freedom and that's evidenced every time a golden parachute is opened in this country so i mean there's a it's really uncomfortable as somebody who you know also puts passionate work into my job trying to make really good and effective things out of nothing um to really reckon with. So like that's what I'm focusing on. But ultimately it's a class issue at heart. If you're a service person, if you're a giver, not a taker, that is just your role. And that's how Sloic devol- like uh that's how he um reduces people down in this movie is into those two camps. So I think that's probably the more I don't know, the more accessible or the more on on the surface uh or maybe even the deeper trench uh, uh, of relatability and um and and that dichotomy is just everything to this movie. I don't want to. I just don't want to neglect it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely there. And I think for people like us, I mean, it's just we're obviously going to see the creative connection just because we live with it every day. And even David, he he's a musician and he works with musicians. And so for him, when we got him watching it, he was like, oh, it's just like the music industry. <laughs> so you know, I I think. It, everybody is kind of any creative person can kind of come at it from their from their way and you know see see themselves in it so on that note if you don't mind sharing if you want to be so brave <laughs> like what is um what's the worst piece of criticism you've ever received or is there a really horrible project you want to talk about like now is your time um, I have to be pretty careful because I, I do currently have NDAs on on projects. Um, uh, and, you know, some of the stuff, some of the stuff I would mention might come from there, but it's really like career spanning. Some of the stuff that I would bring up, the one, one that happened more recently was I. <laughs> there's a project we've been that I've been pitching for a long time. That's like like six months of work, um, and. Lots of back and forth, lots of little battles, lots of little things, you know, disagreements that we had to work through. And then there's a new person, decision maker, I should say, um, on the client side who comes in and looks at the work and says, eh, I don't know. I think I've seen something like this before. Let's do something new. And not a complete restart, but a complete restart of the visual style 
that was really tough for me because there was no addendum to that. It's just, I think I might've seen something like this before. And I was basically thrust into an exercise mode or I'm like, well, maybe it's the colors. Maybe it's the way the typeset here. Maybe it's this little thing right here or that little thing. And it's just this rudderless. That's maybe worse than getting like direct mean feedback is the, I don't know, just make it better. Like that, that's the worst. That's a, that's a, I'll know it when I see it client. Oh my God. I hate it so much. And then the only other one that I will say is um, I was doing this campaign, working on this campaign that like involved, let's let's say there's the ad lob that we were, that was, was being pitched, had like a kid on it. And it said something along the lines of like, it's appealing to parents of kids uh, for healthcare reasons. And like, oh, if you, um, you love your kid, so look into, you know, ask your doctor about X, Y, and Z or whatever. And we showed it to the client and one of the client's only things they said was, well, you know, not all parents love their kids. Yeah, man. <laughs> I'm like, wow. I, are we going after the abusive parent demographic? Because I think I'd like to opt out if that's what we're doing. Like, I mean, wh- parents loving their, their kids. Parental love. Yeah, that's, that's pretty standard. It's a safe. That's a pretty safe bet. And also, I don't really want to engage with those other people. I, I. Am I really concerned with what the abusive parents of the world think of my ad? No, I'm love not. Parents love their kids. Oh my gosh, it's a heinous thing to say, and that's not even the worst. But I can't go. I can't say some of the other more ridiculous stuff. So yes, I understand. Sorry. I I'm in a, a similar situation, um, but I have an old story that's pretty terrible. So when I was I was contract work at this time. This is when we first moved to Florida and I was like trying to find a full-time design job and it just it took me a long time. And so in the meantime, I worked retail and I worked contract for this one company. And they did all kinds of stuff, but they did a lot of like local logos. Like this is all very low, you know, low tier work because it's the beginning of my career. And so they had this entertainment company that they were working with. And at first I didn't know what that meant. And then I learned that that meant this place went in and did like promos and entertainment at like bars and nightclubs. So they would go in and coordinate, say, a wet T-shirt contest at your local bar. So I'm already right. I'm super psyched to hear this. I'm like, okay, well, it's where are we going? That's here? your speed. If I know oh. anything about you, yeah, this you is really in my wheelhouse. So I'm like, okay, um, what's 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 the ask going to be? So they want a logo, and um, there is there happens to be like a capital A in their name, right? So they mm-hmm. were like, well, we want like a mud flap girl to be like they and i was like okay it's not terrible like it's not great but it's a silhouette yeah it's a silhouette of a woman i can make this work so i did it and it actually looked pretty good fairly classy and then um for yeah for you know a sexy silhouette woman whatever (laughs) um so then the feedback that comes back was of course we love it can you have her like wearing a thong and have it like pulled down like around her calves to make like the crossbar of the A. And I was like, mm. want me to what now? <laughs> so wow. 
Yeah, every year. So 38-year-old Nicole would say, absolutely not. You can hire someone else. But 24-year-old, I need this job. Starving Nicole was like, yeah, I'll just, sure. <laughs> oh, man. Sure. If you want to... If you want to talk about debasing yourself at the beginning of your career, I can tell you that yeah. the first job I was ever paid to do um, was a personal project for someone who ha- was going on a hunting trip with friends on somebody, one of his friend's birthday, and his friend's friend had testicular cancer and only had one testicle. And I was forced to render a letter G in such a way that the descender looked like a hairy man's testicle. Um, that was my introduction to being a professional designer. Not to mention the time that my uh, creative director made me buy him weed. So, oh, there's a there's a lot of that's a fun. lot that happens when you're young in the biz. Yeah, that's the. But according that's to some of the stories stuff. I've heard, it's gotten better. So hopefully by <laughs> next year, we won't have any of that nonsense. Yeah. So the, these are the these are types of things are the things that do make me appreciate where I'm at now, um, even on the hard days for sure, because it has definitely it has definitely been worse. So okay, moving into the food portion of this conversation. <laughs> Have you watched Chef's Table and do you like cooking shows? I have maybe seen an episode of Chef's Table. I, I I think that what I was bringing up earlier about like egomaniacal artists, I think it just watching that show sort of rubs me on that spot. And I just don't like that's the kind of cooking show I don't want to watch. I would much rather watch like Good Eats where you learn the science of cooking or just today I was watching Korean street food. It's no talking, just people making insanely bad for you but delicious looking street food for people to eat in korea and like that's that's the sort of thing i do like and to to me like the latter is just like i don't know it's like a beautiful white noise to fall asleep to um but then like i like the educational stuff if i'm gonna either that or like like uh what's that show not hell's kitchen the other one um Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay, which is the most absurdly <laughs> manipulative show I've ever seen. And it makes me laugh so hard how hard they work to make everything in that show as high drama as they possibly can. So, like, I don't know. I think that's more about the the the, the merits of the quote unquote documentarians than it is anything else. Yeah, I have not um, seen any of the Hell's Kitchen or Kitchen Nightmare, but I mean, I've of course I've seen the memes, I've heard the stories, so uh, it does mm-hmm. seem highly entertaining. Um, I we've watched Chef's Table, like I don't know if we've watched all of it, but I've definitely seen a lot of it. And um, the episode with uh, Sean Brock, who is um, he's like a rock star of like Southern cuisine, like he basically made Southern mm-hmm. food like high art, and um, his his episode is so good. And I think it's because I'm Southern. And so it just like resonated with me that like all this really, like he's out in the, out in the farm, like picking beans. And he's talking about how when his grandmother died, he saved like the mother to like pickle his stuff and all that kind of stuff. Like the grittiness of that, I think really like made me connect with his story. Um, But I cannot remember one other episode of that show. So if that tells you anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and remembering a show is a whole different question. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. If there's yeah. not a dramatic through line that I can follow, then it's just slides right off the dome. I definitely don't actually, I watch those educational shows, but 
the retention is low. Yeah. yeah. And I will say, like, when I was doing research for this episode, I came across a few articles about um, different chefs and restaurants that I've definitely heard of and have been exposed to. And some of them have been on chef's table and how, how they are the worst, most abusive places to work and how they say they're sustainable and they're trying to be farm to table and they're like misleading about it. And so I oh, think great. that like that, you know, the people who made this movie, I think are definitely aware of that for sure. And that's part of what they're, it's part of what they're criticizing. Um, but again, it's that sort of balance between being inspired by somebody who's passionate and like what's overdoing it. So on the other side of, that coin. I love to watch um, Restaurant Impossible with Robert Irvine. Have you seen that? <laughs> I, I I don't know if I've seen that particular show, but I, Robert Irvine had a moment for like three to five years some time ago where he was on literally anything Everyone. related to yeah, food. Everything. I love that <laughs> so man. Like on Restaurant Impossible, he goes into like a failing restaurant and he has like 72 hours to help them turn it around. So he brings oh, somebody in to redecorate kitchen, it. Is it the same? Is Kitchen Nightmare it's the, the same? same thing? Kitchen Nightmares, yeah. It sounds like, though, that Robert Irvine, I mean, he's like, he's kind of tough and he's like honest with people about like, oh, you're not accounting oh. right or whatever. But like, he's very much like, he's very sweet and he'll like sit yeah. down and have heart to hearts with them. And so it's just, it's a warm, fuzzy show, but it also, it mm. hits the, it hits my food bone. It hits the design bone because there's somebody in there doing interior design. And I just, I love mm -hmm. Robert Irvine. So that one is like my low stakes, feel good. And they're like 15 seasons. You can just binge it. So that would be my, uh, my light food show recommendation. So interesting. That's like the, it's like the, the yin to kitchen nightmares gang where it's <laughs> like one is about being one has, it's the same show, just one with the meanest person possible, the Simon Cowell school. And then the other from, I don't know, the, the pre uh, British Bake Off school of thought, which I also like that show too. I've heard but good things about that one, but I cooking. haven't watched it. <laughs> that's a that's a sweet fuzzy show if there ever was one. Oh. <laughs> so I got one more question for you, Randy. What okay. is the best meal you've ever had? Um, this is a tough question. And you prefaced this question for me in advance for me so that I could prepare. Thank you for that. Um <laughs> I could whittle it down to three, and they're kind of okay. uh organized in terms of how many dollar signs there would be on its Google reviews page. Mm -hmm. So starting with the high end, and this is and this is also based on my incredibly terrible memories. So bear with me. They're all pretty recent. Um, one would be a place here in DC that I took um, Becky, my partner for their birthday uh, last year. And it's called Rasika. And it's like a Michelin star place, I believe um, here in DC. That's uh, um sort of Indian, like, uh, I can't remember the region, but it's, it's like largely Indian pan Indian and Asian food going on there. Not so much the Asian, just more Indian, but like, I really enjoyed that. They, we did the tasting course, which we never do. It's like, you know, we sprung, you know, a little mm -hmm, bit for the mm -hmm. birthday. And it was honestly like, everything was really like robust. Everything was like perfectly seasoned and had like, you know, unique flavors or whatever. And I could like go full Nicholas Holt on this right now. And just like, dig into like oh it had this and this and this 
And but like it was just like truly delicious and unique. And I don't I would be happy to go there again. It's a great place. Um, apparently, it's been around for some time and has quite a reputation here. But I didn't know that when I booked it. I just heard it was good from one person. Um, <clears throat> my middle tier, my three out of five dollar signs would be a place called Julio's Mexican Food in El Paso, Texas, that I we stopped Ooh. in at on the way through on a road trip. And I love Mexican food. I love Tex-Mex. I love traditional Mexican food from what I've had of it. Uh, and being like right on the border in El Paso, this place, like I was like, okay, we got to go to like a good place here. It's a medium sort of like casual place, not quite a roadside stand and not quite a Michelin star, I don't think. Um, but it was so delicious. I had like mole chicken and all that stuff. And I'll tell you the re- reason that I had to include it on this list is because I have never, ever, in my life had worse heartburn than I had the moment I left that building. I had to pull off the side of the road for a minute and trade spots with Beck so that I could like relax. It was horrible and I would definitely go again. It's that good. It's that good. Yeah. That's how I know you don't always get like the true test in a restaurant. And then last but not least, um, this is kind of like, uh, just like, this is just family meal sort of thing. Um, the low end, the $1 sign, the no dollar sign, really, because my parents paid for it typically. Um, but just getting some like good barbecue brisket or steak from my dad um, mm-hmm. and then some homemade mac and cheese, a side salad. I'm a happy man. Like that's that's not one individual meal. That's like a span of growing up with that meal. So. Yeah, there is something really you? special about mm-hmm. like cooking with your family and there's always like the those certain dishes that could never be replicated even if they're not like the highest quality or whatever like you have that family member that makes that thing that you like the way you like it and it's like no one in the world could replicate it so i i do love those meals um so i i also have kind of like a tiered approach um the fancy nice. one would be a restaurant i was thinking about while i was watching the menu it's a place that we went earlier this year. Um, it's a place called Heirloom here in Rogers, Arkansas. And it's basically like a speakeasy restaurant. Like it's sort of hidden. If you don't know where it is, like there's no sign or anything. There's just like this uh, this little like light bulb outside of it. And that's how you know where you're going. And it's really hard to get a reservation because there's seating, I think, for 12 people. <laughs> And so what you do is you just call and you say, put me on the wait list. And when they call and say, we have an opening, you just go. So at like four o'clock on a Wednesday, David was like, do you want to go to heirloom? And I was like, sure. It's a prefix menu. So it's just one set price and they just bring you courses. We didn't ask how much the set price was. We were just all in. We're just going. You Hell know? Yeah. Uh, it was not well, 1250 ahead. Yeah, it was not 1250 ahead. Just to be clear, it was it was like fancy and chill at the same time because it's a couple that owns it. The husband is a chef. The wife is a sommelier. And they're like, aren't really like servers. Like the chef brings you your courses and he tells you about them and like tells you how mm-hmm. to eat it. But he's not, he's not in anything fancy or, you know, he's just, he's dressed casual. She's dressed casual. So even though the food is like very painstakingly prepared and it is like local ingredients and such, it still feels like very approachable <laughs> to use a fancy word. Um, 
So that was just great. It was the most expensive meal we've ever had. And like the bill was a little bit of a surprise, but it was celebratory. So, you know, we justified it. But um, <laughs> but it was just a joy to, you know, to just to not have to order, to just have somebody who's great at what they do. Just bring me food and say, this is what I wanted to make this month based on the ingredients available. Like, enjoy, you know. So that one was really great. Um kind of a mid-tier, I don't know, this might even be a lower, a low tier, but uh, in New Orleans, because I've had lots of great food in New Orleans. I mean, you can't go wrong. No, you can't. No, you just, I tell people when they ask, I'm like, go to, if there, if any place with a line, go there. If they don't have a line, don't (laughs) go there, you know? (laughs) Um, So there's this place called Coop's Place. It's on Decatur Street. It's a few blocks down from Cafe Du Monde on the other side of the street. And mm-hmm. um, it's a tiny little dive and there is always a wait to get in because it's small in there. But they have this thing called, the, I think it's called the taste plate. And it has like a little bit of all their signature dishes. So it's got rabbit jambalaya. It's got gumbo. Oh. It's got, um, oh, it's got a piece of fried chicken. It's got shrimp creole. And every single thing on the plate is fantastic. And so we've been several times now, but the first time we went was we always stay with friends when we go down there, which is great because they live there and they're locals and they know. And so we asked them where to go. And, you know, they told us, oh, you know, everybody like everybody's in Raven about Coop's place. That's where we go. And so we didn't know what to expect, really. And when we got there, I mean, it was just it was fun. It was such a pleasant experience. And it's something that we will we I mean, we've told people about that place a million times it's just we'll never forget it so that's definitely that's a good memory i'm you're making me remember all sorts of different meals i've had that were like mind-blowingly good but of course my memory is not enough to be able to command the name or location of some of them because it's been all over but there's a lot to there's just like there's a lot of great food in this country thank god oh yeah and i and and like that's one of our favorite things to do is go out and eat or sit in a bar or whatever yeah. it's just you know Oh, food. <laughs> it is. It's comforting, man. It's good stuff. Well, I think that's all I have but, for tonight, Randy. Thanks for coming on, I man. I can't believe we covered it. I could talk for another 20 <laughs> hours about this damn movie. There's so much, so much meat on the bone. Well, maybe, maybe you'll get to. More. <laughs> oh, yes. That sounds great. Well, at first, whenever he was criticizing the s'more, I was like, oh. You're going to criticize this more. And then when he said it was transformed by the flame, I was like, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> you respect <laughs> it. You you, I, you may be a mass murderer, but I draw the line at besmirching the small. Yeah. You just lost me, man. <laughs> Come on. So, Randy, tell us where, where we can find you. Yeah, I am a co-host on a much less um, well put together show called Straight Chilling Podcast. It's a, it's a great show. show. We we have our apologists for sure. Um, uh, I'm our harshest critic, by the way. <laughs> it's true. I am everyone in the restaurant. Um, I think that the best way to find us is just through your pod catcher of choice, as is the choice language of my co-host Rob. Um, or else through straightchillingpodcast.com. You can find us in either place, and we do stuff every week, at least once a week. And also um, on Andy's Instagram, he always does Drawloween in October, which I know we're very far from October, but if you want to give him a follow, you're at Andy Gaddis, right? That's right. Yeah. And uh, you're right. 
it's going to be a ghost town until October. I'm sure where I just like do all of my social social mediaing for the entire year. I always enjoy so. it though. Like I, uh, I liked that you did cryptids this year instead of kind of, you know, just the standard, whatever. That was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad you liked it. It's uh, always, ext- it's one of those things that's you love to do it and then you hate to do it and then you're happy you did it and then you want to do it again. And then you ask yourself why it's just a long cycle of that. <laughs> and that is the creative process. Oh yeah. <laughs> So uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, joining me yet again today. And the next time you're ready to, like, rake a filmmaker over the coals, maybe remember Chef Slowick, Tyler's Bullshit, and those horrible people in the dining room. Creation isn't easy, but criticism is. So uh, until we meet again, I hope you all take the time to enjoy a well-made cheeseburger and stay spooky. Spooky.